Hi, this is Heidi, and this is Parent Town, a podcast where we explore stories of parenting in hopes that they can connect us and maybe make the world a little easier to understand. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Parent Town. This is Heidi. This is the third podcast we are dedicating to a series on restorative practices. And in this episode, I get to talk to the fabulous Becky McCammon. Becky is the Restorative Practice Program Coordinator for St. Paul Public Schools and the St. Paul Federation of Educators. I was able to sit down and chat with her about what St. Paul in particular is doing with restorative practices, the history of how it came to be, and where she would like to see it go. Even if your kids don't attend school in St. Paul, Minnesota, there is so much to take from what Becky shares. I hope this episode brings up questions, ideas, and leaves you thinking. Here is Becky's story. Yeah, my name is Becky McCammon, and my title is Restorative Practice Program Coordinator. And I say that that's for St. Paul Public Schools and St. Paul Federation of Educators because of the origin of restorative practices in our district. Thank you. Tell me a little bit about this history (laughs) of, I know it probably could be its own podcast, uh, (laughs) but a little bit of the history of this, how did this start? How did this start? How did this collaboration start? If you could just give me a little bit of the background. So uh, St. Paul Federation of No Educators used to be St. Paul Federation of Teachers. Uh, In their 2015 to 2017 bargaining season, so that's sort of the winter, I think, of 2015 into the beginning of 2016, uh, restorative practices was something that they bargained for in the teacher contract or in the licensed educator contract. And in their initial dream utopia state, they imagined that any school that wanted to explore and learn about restorative practices would receive a full-time licensed staff member at $100,000 approximately and... um, professional development supports for that building. And they needed to have 75% educator approval so that a building felt like this was an adventure and a learning experience that they wanted to take on. Because bargaining is bargaining, um, it was sorted and sifted down to an agreement that St. Paul Federation of Educators would pursue a great public schools grant through National Education Association and that grant was for three years, aligned with the first three years of our piloting of restorative practices, and that the Great Public Schools grant would pay for half of my position Mm -hmm. and would also create a professional development allowance or offerings for communities. So what the district agreed to was $4.5 million over three years invested in 12 pilot sites. And what that meant was that six pilot sites were chosen for year one, 2016-17 school year. Three additional sites would be added in 17-18 and three additional pilot sites in 18-19. With all of those schools having the privilege, the sanctuary of three full years to be moving towards whole school implementation. So with that, 
the hundred thousand dollars that went away, mm -hmm. um, but each school was awarded one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and they broke it down in the contract so that it was one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for the first six schools. In year two, I feel like there was one point two million dollars to go across nine, okay. and this last year we had one point five across twelve. Okay, okay. So I was going to get to this question later, but you just kind of mentioned it. So how many sites in St. Paul do we have as of today? Yeah, so as of today, we have 12 okay. pilot sites. And also there's the important counter-narrative or important narrative to partner to that is that there are 20 schools that over the course of the three years applied to be restorative practice pilot sites, but because of funding constraints, um, weren't gifted sure. those, those grant dollars to start their process that okay. way. So that's where we're at Yes. That's where we're at today. Yep. To back it up a little, too, and to think about what was going on in that bargaining room, what was happening, or possibly still is happening, yeah. currently in schools, that made this idea of restorative practices, and we can just refer to that as RP if we want, in St. Paul Public Schools? Yeah. Uh, the origin really comes from that we have harm. We experience harm. Uh, our young people, our families, our educators, our communities feel uh, harm. We experience harm. And we in St. Paul had some pretty uh, well-published documentation of that harm happening in our schools. And it, it, it was constructed in a way that said that if discipline were improved or if safety was a greater value, that St. Paul Public Schools would be better, right, that we would be honoring mm -hmm. our mission. What I think is real and true is that, yes, harm was happening and harm did happen, but I don't believe that it was outstanding or unique mm -hmm. in the course of our story of public education. It happened that there were some more highly publicized pieces. So St. Paul Federation of Educators did craft a one-page narrative that said restorative practices instead of. Mm, mm -hmm. So in their opening understanding of restorative practices, they were absolutely thinking about that this is a response to or in place of what's not working. Mm -hmm. So okay. even beyond that, St. Paul Public Schools has a racial equity 101 policy and has made some commitments in policy around um, disruption of our achievement gap and closing our disparity of, of discipline referrals. And the understanding was that we had stopped suspending, and I put that in air quotes, that educators, principals had stopped suspending students because we knew it was a problem that we were over-suspending black right. and brown students. Right. But that wasn't addressing the needs. And so we know that suspension doesn't work and that expulsion is not working to the benefit of any young person or family but we didn't have something else. And mm. so the Federation sought to explore restorative practices as could this be? And that is part of the story, that we yeah. didn't necessarily know what we didn't know at the beginning, that this is really about school climate, and that a critical piece of school climate is how equity lives or bias lives in a space. Absolutely. But the origin was about we need something besides what we're doing. Okay. We, we realized there's clearly gaps and the bargaining team gathered with community circle keepers yeah. um, to, to start that learning process, but we were enthusiastic in 
are learning yes. without knowing everything. Absolutely. And well, that's kind of where the magic happens too. In that, <laughs> in that not knowing, I'm sure that you also saw examples of it working in other districts around, you know, not only the United States, but in, in the world right. and where this comes from originally, which is sacred and holistic. Okay. Well, that gives me some good context. You yeah. know, I think that is too of like, well, what was happening? Why all of a sudden was this something that was like, oh, we should be doing this. So when a school is then an RP school and they receive the pilot status, what does that school and community who practice yeah. RP, what do they, be, what do they believe? <laughs> um, I think foremost that a restorative practice pilot site is empowered to determine what they do believe and to examine their beliefs. So to become a sort of practice pilot side to even apply, you, your, your building has to decide, like, we want this. And the journey has taught us that what people thought that they said yes to is different than what a restorative commitment or a restorative investment really looks like for an educator in their personhood. Mm -hmm. So this might require me uh, to examine my beliefs if the first tenant um, of restorative practices says that we're all good, wise, and powerful and I'm wrestling with that in my belief place. Mm -hmm. And in my wrestling of that in a belief place, it means that that's showing up sideways in how I am educating and with families and children. Whew. Uh, that's a lot. That is a lot. Uh, for our restorative practice pilot sites to examine a thing that we've been talking about forever, but how are we in relationship with families and community? When do we make a phone call? When do we email? When do we do nothing at all? And what is the first contact a family has with a building from an administrator because harm has happened? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. a an RP site must get in relationship with itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> get in relationship with who are we? What do we want to be? What do we aspire yeah. to be? What's getting in our way? And I've always loved the term. I think this always helps me is it's a way... It, it's not like a, this is not a program that is implemented. Yeah. This is not one more thing that teacher has on his or her desk. It's all, it's like a, and it's, a, it's adaptive change versus technical changes. Yeah. yeah. And so you are really changing the climate and that does not happen overnight. No. <laughs> no. It's not like you just like, you guys are a pilot site. There you go. You're great. It's, you know, that is like the buying and commitment. It's easier said than done, I can imagine. Yeah. And that gets me to my next question is how are educators and staff, and I would love to hear about like students, how are they embracing this? And if you have any kind of personal stories you'd like to bring in of what you've heard from the sites that have this yeah. and maybe have been really working with this for years. Anything you can share? That? <laughs> <laughs> so one of my favorite stories comes out of one of our elementary schools and it I think it maybe even a K or one okay. class and there is a scholar nonverbal who uses uh technology assistance okay. um, to be heard, right, and understood in this space. And they circle up on a regular basis. And on that particular day, the adult who's responsible for making sure that all of that technical stuff is in place when a scholar gets there for whatever reason was running behind. And when the talking piece got to that scholar, they talked and they talked and they talked and they talked. 
And so the other young learners maybe couldn't understand exactly all of the pieces of what they wanted to express, but they knew in that moment, everybody knew in that moment that I have the talking piece, that young person knew that they would be heard yes. and that the others would stay attentive and thoughtful and present mm. with that learner. And so I appreciate and love the way that restorative practices and circle can become like a muscle memory that is reassuring. Oh, that's such a good way of saying that, like muscle memory. Yeah. It is. Uh -huh. And and I think the kids that I've done circle with, the ones that, you know, we're bringing back maybe to join us again. Yeah. They're different kids. Yeah. They enter that space yep. differently. And it is such an honor to like yeah. be there with them. Yeah. What about educators in the schools? Yeah. Um, so... I recently did some training for um, Education Minnesota and their racial equity advocates. And so this, these are educators from across the state who okay. want to accelerate and support their journey. And so this was my first time holding a circle where someone in circle was deaf. Okay. And I can only sort of imagine the deeply isolating experience of you need another human being to help you access right? The experience or what's going on in most cases and a lot of spaces. And so there were two uh, interpreters that were with us. And one really liked sitting in the middle of the circle to sign. Okay. And the other really liked standing behind the people um, as they were sharing when they had the talking piece. And I don't know that I've ever been able to see such radiant joy in an adult educator in feeling seen and heard and able to experience mm -hmm. community mm -hmm. than in that moment mm -hmm. of the way there was that beautiful support and navigation and the space held it in a way that they were fully a part of the community as opposed to on the periphery of, of what's happening in a space and just in like maybe one moment. Mm -hmm. So I, I appreciate that's outside of the pilot sites, but it for me stands out in a way that how circle and that process can access and structure in a healthy way, not in a regimented way, but in a healthy way for some of our learners, educator, young and old, a way to be present mm -hmm. and, and with. I have heard countless tales of restorative practices empowering for educators a way to stay in the field. The attrition rate or the burnout or the associative trauma that educators are holding because it is, it's super intense to have 45 kiddos in your classroom. And it's super intense when hurt people hurt people and young scholars are bringing that hurt to school because it is warm and it is predictable and there are adults that won't harm them mm -hmm. or will largely not harm them, right? We have some legal parameters of like the kind of harm that we can engage in. So, to know that sitting in circle for an educator is rejuvenating in a more sustaining way than donuts on a Friday brought by a principal, <laughs> that feels pretty extraordinary. Thank you for mentioning that. That never crossed my mind. Huh. That never crossed my mind that it would be a, that kind of source for educators. Yes. And... Yep. Thank you for mentioning that, though. I think that's really important to acknowledge. Yep. That, And when you were in Circle, and we've talked about this before, and other people have talked about this on the podcast, uh, you are in it together. There's no hierarchy. And so when you sit in the Circle, 
educators are with children in the circle. Adults are with kids. And there's co-keepers, or there's a, co- there's a keeper of the circle, but there's not a, a leader. There's not somebody who's telling everybody what to do. So there's an adjustment there. But thank you for mentioning that. That's huge. So related to that educator perspective and health, our research evaluation and assessment department has built, they call it a dashboard, you know, a thing to look at sure. for data. Okay. And so one of the things that I can notice across the pilot sites is that schools that started in year one in 16, 17, like their staff attendance is is up by like hundreds of days. Wow. As in if if a school staff had... 800 absences, right? So they had 800 absences. One to two years into the pilot, staff are coming to school a lot more often, as in absences are down by like 200. And so absolutely, positively, I want students in school learning and engaged and feeling like they belong. And I want a disruption and I want an end to a school-to-prison pipeline, and I want our babies with us more. Mm-hmm. And I know that that's a journey, right, that there's a lot to decolonize. Yes. But if I think about the picture of school climate with are the adults healthier and coming to school more often, that's, we're like, we're doing okay in that, right? Because yeah. then I think about, well, that's a big deal, because if you have 200 days as a scholar, or you have a guest teacher, uh-huh. someone who is not with you with constancy and who may or may not understand how to be present with mm-hmm. you for this 50 minutes. Uh-huh. I mean, that's a lot more constancy for young people if our staff are at school more often. Yes. So that's a super striking piece for me to reflect on, like, oh, yeah. our staff are coming to work more often. Yes. Yay. That's awesome. And again, yeah. thank you for mentioning that. What are your wishes for St. Paul Public Schools? Like we were chatting <laughs> earlier before I pushed record, like if money wasn't the issue, if writing grants wasn't the issue, uh, all, of, all of these barriers that yeah. the humans put in front of yeah. us. Um, what would that look like to you? Uh, <laughs> What's the utopia? <laughs> I spent, uh, I don't know, an hour and a half with the NAACP, their education committee, last oh. week. And they asked the same question. They did. Okay. And one of the first things that I offered was that I'd love to see our administration on a two-week restorative retreat. Um, my belief and my observations have been that everyone wants to be in good relationship with people. And public education, like most, most systems, aren't set up for us to be in healthy relationship with one another. There, There isn't... I make appointments with the superintendent because I choose to imagine a world where that is a real equity, where my voice as a mom of St. Paul students and as an employee and as a woman of color and as a district leader, that I should be able to make an appointment with him. But there's a lot that fights against that instinct where maybe I should have asked my supervisor and they would ask their supervisor, like the four people between myself and the Mm. superintendent, that I should have made that followed some sort of sequence. Hmm. And so there are four assistant superintendents that support our principals across the district, and they're meant to hold them accountable to their hopes and goals and wishes for these whole communities. But that's really, our assistant superintendents only get to hang out with principals that they have to hold accountable or other people high up there that they're like checking to see are we all like yeah. doing what we're supposed to do. Yeah. And yeah. And so 
lost in our commitment and our deep value-centered hopes for young people are that our our adults at the highest level have very, very little time to be seen as human and to experience and laugh Mm -hmm. without worrying that they're holding HR confidentiality or professional discretion or boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so I'd love two weeks for that Mm -hmm. group of adults who, um, yeah, I think feel very, very lonely. So I'd love that. I love that vision. I would love our families and our community members to have abundant time. So there's a lovely organizer, Mua Zhang, who works for St. Paul Parks and Rec, okay. and he supports our St. Paul Youth Commissioners. Okay. And some of the youth have this project in mind that they really want to restore the harm between park and rec centers and libraries and our youth. Hmm. Because sometimes our youth you know, you get done with school and yep. where where do you go and what do you want to do and what feels safe? And if you have those needs for safety, belonging, warmth, food, snacks, I don't know if you're always showing up your most regulated self when you're in a library mm-hmm. or you're not maybe your most regulated self at the rec center. And yet that place is desperately needed yes. and deserved for you yes. as a right as a St. Paul citizen. Yeah. And so harm has happened between those spaces. So... I vision a restorative St. Paul because I can work endlessly and other people with good heart can work endlessly for restorative practices in St. Paul public schools. But if that isn't how we are deeply in relationship across the city, mm. um, I mean, I can't, mm-hmm. I can try to stay personal or sure. media with St. Paul. Like I can't vision all Minnesota, <laughs> but I believe that there has to be that it is a language that feels accessible and pop. Like some of the Maxfield babies last year in their kindergarten classrooms experienced 484 community building circles. That's incredible. So their instinct towards how do we, what, what is circle? Well, we sit there because we form community and we do yoga in circle and we laugh together. And if we have a problem as a community, we come to circle. Mm-hmm. So I really want that five-year-old who then is going to continue to have that experience at Maxfield as a middle school or high school navigating a community to be like, well, could we circle up around this if there's a problem? Oh, I love that. <laughs> Goosebumps. Right. We start of St. Paul. Yeah. So one of the, one of the gifts of this journey for me is that, uh, restorative practices does not inherently require any credentials because in our humanity, we are all deeply, deeply qualified to be in relationship with learning and relationship with self and relationship with others. And, it has very uniquely, from my perspective, empowered um, a lot of folks of color mm-hmm. um, who live and work in our schools and really directly um, around harm mm-hmm. and, and supporting youngsters get re-regulated, um, has empowered their giftedness mm-hmm. as practitioners and leaders. Um, and I think also become sort of like the job people have always wanted. Yeah. Um, and that has, you know, we talk a lot about more people of color in classrooms. And as a person of color who was in a classroom, I, I, I believe I had impact and I held that weight with what integrity I could as I was learning to be an educator. Uh, but I love the promise of restorative practices to empower folks in a really healthy way that might not have an instinct towards wanting to teach the content of science or algebra. 
but do deeply want to be a part of working with young people and adults for healthier communities and the aspirations we all hold for the next generation and the current one. Mm-hmm. So that. Absolutely. Yeah. Becky, thank you. You're such welcome. A joy. Thank you. you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Parent Town. Please like us and share the podcast on Facebook with your community. Really appreciate it. You can um, also subscribe, listen, and comment to Parent Town where you listen to all your podcasts. Giving us a rating on iTunes really helps us get to the top of the podcast list for the public. If you have an idea for a show, we would love to hear from you. If you want to know more about what St. Paul is doing, check out the Restorative Practices site on www.sppss.org. There's a cool short little video there. Thank you to Greg Ward at Studio Arcade and to Park States for our theme music. Stay tuned for number four in our Restorative Practices series coming soon. Again, thanks for listening. I'm Heidi, and this is Parent Town.